Hello, and welcome to Colored Red. This is the very first episode. Uh, This is a podcast about the lesser-known murders that have taken place throughout the history of Colorado and the founding of Denver. Um, I'm your host, Laura. It should really go without saying that this is going to feature some uh, adult themes and content, and so listener discretion is advised. Um, I would also say that this is my very first podcast episode and my very first attempt at recording anything of my voice. And, you know, you think you can read until you have to read something aloud. So um, please bear bear with me here. And I'll have an email set up shortly to send me emails with comments or criticism or ideas for how to better the recordings. And... Um, I'm essentially going to be sticking to the facts and information that I've pulled out of uh, various books, which I'll be referencing on my Buzzsprout page, and um, old, basically, periodicals and articles from the Denver Post and the Rocky Mountain News. And uh, I think that's it for the intro. Uh, Without further ado, The Denver Spider-Man. The year is 1942. The United States is about to launch its first air raid attack on the Japanese main islands. The Women's Army Auxiliary Corps was created this year, guaranteeing women salaried positions in the United States Army. The popular Disney film Bambi would be released this year, and the average cost of a new home was $3,770. This is the year that construction began on the Rocky Mountain Arsenal near Denver and Commerce City to store chemical weapons. It was closed in 1992. During this year, Denver residents also saw the conclusion of a bizarre murder that occurred the previous fall. The bungalow on West Montcrieff Place, now a part of the popular Highland neighborhood in Denver, Colorado, sat dark and silent in the frigid month of January. A light was sometimes seen by neighborhood children glowing from inside the empty house, and a neighbor reported seeing a pale specter leering from inside of a window. The house loomed like a dark force on the street drawing energy off of the shadows and unearthly imaginations of the nearby residents. And for good reason. This was a murder house. By July of that year, suspicions and doubts were high enough to station two policemen in their patrol car across from the residence in the hopes of catching a glimpse of the specter. Instead, one of them caught the face of what he described to be a hobgoblin, watching him from the upstairs window. The face in the window appeared to be monitoring the activity of the postman putting mail in the mailbox in front of the home. The police officer nudged his partner, who also saw the face. They took off running to the home they presumed to be empty. As they ran up to the house, the face sunk back behind the closed curtains. They were about to close a case that had boggled the mind of detectives for nearly a year. On October 17, 1941, Philip Peters was expected next door for dinner. His wife was in the hospital recovering from a fractured hip, and Peters was having meals prepared for him by his generous neighbor, Mrs. Jenny Ross. When the normally punctual Peters failed to show up for dinner, Mrs. Ross and other concerned neighbors came looking for him at his home. All the doors were locked. One neighbor found a loose screen and crawled through the window and screamed upon finding the ghastly sight of Peters' dead body. James Childers was the captain of detectives in 1941, and he was the first to arrive. As he examined the body, he noticed that Peter's right arm was extended over his face as if shielding a blow, and the index fingernail of his right hand had been pulled out. Peters had not gone down without a fight. The coroner noted that Peters, a 73-year-old, 200-pound, healthy man, had over a dozen severe blows to his body, as well as multiple strikes to his head. He had been dead for approximately four hours. The murder weapon was a cast-iron shaker from the stove. It had been washed, 
but some of Peter's blood remained on the shaker. It appeared he had been awakened from a nap, as one slipper still remained by the couch. Among other items noted at the scene was a valuable vintage pistol that had been broken into pieces and likely grabbed by Peters in an attempt to defend himself. Another item discovered was an antique cane from his collection laying beside his body. Blood spatter lined the walls. The home was eerily silent. The most curious detail about the scene, however, was that the house had been locked entirely from the inside when the victim was discovered, and no point of force entry was found. Police started with the profile of the victim, Philip Peters. He was an auditor for the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad. He was the founder of the West Montcrief Mandolin Club, and he had often held mandolin lessons in his home. There were no known enemies that anyone could identify, nor anyone with a motive to kill Phil Peters. Helen, his wife, returned to the home after recovering from her fractured hip. She injured her hip again in the home after a noise startled her, and not wanting to return to the hospital, a live-in nurse became her constant companion. The nurse proceeded to report rattling noises within the walls. Later, she came around a corner in the home to see what she described as a spook on the back stairs who chattered his teeth at her. She immediately resigned, and the care of Mrs. Peters was taken over by a neighbor. The neighbor heard a noise one night and ran into the dark kitchen to see a filthy, scrawny figure that had vanished when she screamed. And with these reports, Helen left the house on Montcrief after only a couple months of living there for other living arrangements with her son. This, among the reports from children and neighbors of a face in the windows, brought police back to their surveillance of the home where they saw the face for themselves in the upstairs window. On that night, the policemen darted into the home as one blew a whistle for assistance. They knocked on the door and entered the quiet home. The furniture was covered in sheets. The house remained as it had been left in many respects, with the exception of an animal smell that hung in the air and surrounded them. Pictures still sat on furniture, the faces now obscured with dust. The two men slowly ascended the stairs in time to see a closet door swing shut across the room. As they opened the closet door, they saw two bare feet hanging from the ceiling. One of the policemen grabbed the leg and the threadbare trousers tore off in his hand. He then pulled on an ankle with both hands and heard a cry of pain come from the attic. They proceeded to pull down a man wearing tattered clothing with a nest of tangled hair on his head. He was as thin as a scarecrow, and his feet were bare and filthy. He was unconscious and laid out on the floor of the room. A description of the coffin-sized attic area and quote from the policeman is stated here. The place where this scrawny man had been hiding was a small cavity in the attic of the home. It was no larger than the size of a coffin. He used an ironing board as his bed and spiderwebs hung everywhere. There were open jars and cans brimming with excrement. Police detective Fred Zarno exclaimed that, quote, a man would have to be a spider to stand it that long up there. William Peary, a photographer for the Rocky Mountain News, gave the murder the nickname the Spider-Man murder. It will be another 20 years before the comic book character Spider-Man is created by Stan Lee. The Spider-Man was Theodore Edward Conies. Investigators questioned Conies and began to piece together a pathetic and sad life that led to his brutal murdering of Philip Peters. Conies was born in 1882. His father passed away in 1888, and he and his mother moved to a farm in Bellewood, Wisconsin. Conies suffered poor health his entire life and was told by doctors that he would likely not live past his 18th birthday. Conies managed to come out of the other end of 18 after failing to graduate from high school. At the age of 25, he moved to Denver, Colorado. He spent much of his adult life as a homeless drifter between odd jobs. He often resented the way he was treated due to his frail physical condition. Conies began conning people to get by. 
In this way, he managed to enter Peter's home for the first time as a musician. He had taken an interest in Peter's involvement in the mandolin club and saw Peter's occasionally when he would show up for meetings. Conies would leave and drift about the United States until wandering back to the home of Peter's in 1941. Conies approached Peter's while he was walking home and was put off when Peter's did not remember him. He asked Peter's for a loan, which was denied, something Conies was used to by then, so he shrugged it off and began scheming another way to re-enter the life of Philip Peter's. For a while, Conies watched the activities of Peter's as he came and went from his home. Once he had a good idea of his schedule, he would sneak up to the house and periodically check all the windows and doors on the chance that one was left unlocked. One day he got lucky. After helping himself to food, he explored the home and found a small opening in the top of the closet. It was then that he hatched the plan to live undetected in the attic of Philip Peters for the winter. He made his way up through a tiny hole barely large enough for a child and made his home in the attic of Peters' house. A month later, Conies was caught by Peters as he helped himself to food from the fridge. Conies thought Peters had left for the day, but Peters had decided to take a nap on the couch. Peters confronted him in the kitchen and a fight ensued. Conies struck Peters with a stove shaker to keep him from running for help. Then he kept striking him until he was dead. Conies washed the shaker, replaced it, then slunk back into his attic hole. From there, he sunk into a self-imposed solitary confinement in an unheated home through the winter. He consumed canned fruit left over from the cellar and 20 pints of grape jelly. His only drinking water came from the hot water heater that no one had drained. When he was found, cans and jars surrounded him that were brimming with feces. He weighed 75 pounds. Conies described his situation himself to police. Quote, Everything would have been all right and Phil Peters would have been alive today if he hadn't caught me robbing the icebox. It was him or me. I thought he had gone out, but he was taking a nap. I hit him with the stove shaker when he tried to run for help. I don't know if he recognized me. It was nearly 30 years since he'd seen me last. When it was over, I ran to the attic and I washed and dried the shaker. I was sitting on the trap door when you were pounding on it from below that night you found him. Theodore Conies was convicted of first-degree murder on November 18, 1942. He was sentenced to a life in prison with no possibility of parole and spent his days in the Colorado State Penitentiary. Many years later, Conies was interviewed again and given a chance to explain his peculiar decision to stay in Peter's attic. Quote, I was in the neighborhood in September 1941 and found the house unlocked and no one home. I went in and stole some food. I was in bad shape. My lungs were giving me a lot of trouble and I was at the end of my rope. Fall was coming on and I couldn't face another winter on the road and had to have a place to stay. I didn't know Mrs. Peters was in the hospital. I found the hole in the closet and climbed through and slept and slept. Whenever I heard him downstairs, I kept real still. Then I got bolder and used to shadow him from room to room. It was sort of a game. It gave me a thrill. It was the first time in my life I'd ever had anyone at my mercy, but I didn't want to hurt him. It was miserable hot in the summer and my feet froze in the dead of winter in that attic, but it was all part of the price I was willing to pay. I can't tell you why I stuck it out. I guess it was mostly because it was a world all my own. I used to go down and look out the windows and watch the postman come and go by. Nobody's written to me in 25 years. Whenever I saw people on the street, I hated them, and I would go back to my attic. Coney's died in the prison hospital on May 16, 1967. He died, the Denver Spider-Man. Thanks for listening, everyone. My references include Murder in the Mile High City by Linda Womack, 
Denver Murders, edited by Lee Casey and Murderpedia. I should have an email set up shortly for questions and comments about the show, and I welcome any help I can get with recording. We should be getting some original music set up pretty soon, and I look forward to bringing you all my next story. Thank you.